And scarce do we guess the things of earth, and what is within our grasp we find with difficulty. But when things are in heaven, who can search them out? Those words from our first reading from the Book of Wisdom echo something that we read all throughout Scripture. This theme of the things of God being so far beyond the things of man that it's difficult for us to grasp them. Rather, it's actually impossible for us to entirely comprehend them. And you know what? That's a good thing. Because if I could fit God neatly in my mind, you got to run for the hills because that means I'm bigger than God. And I would not be a very good God. Right? I wouldn't be evil. I'd just be incompetent at it. Right? I can barely multitask as it is. And yet very often we have this thought that if I can't totally comprehend something as neatly as I do a mathematical equation, I can't know it. We, we tend to view reason in this very limited way. And we think that mystery is something totally off to the side, something utterly unknowable. But that's not the Christian way of looking at things. No, we recognize that God is more than just a math problem. I'm never going to understand the infinite God the way that I understand 2 plus 2 equals 4. He's a mystery, just like every single one of you is a mystery wrapped in flesh. I can, I can try to get to know you from this day forward for the rest of my life, and I'll still barely be at the tip of the iceberg. And if I am in a room full of mysteries here, how much greater is the mystery of God who spoke us all into being? So that means that we can't know anything about him, right? No, I can know very real things about you. I just need to often take them on faith. I can be creepy and just research all of you. I can go on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, wherever, and and just find out facts about you. That doesn't mean I know you. I can know things about you from the outside, but I can only know you if you let me in. And then I have to take it on faith. Well, it's the same with God himself. He has revealed himself to us as he is. And in so doing, he lifted reason higher than reason could have reached on its own. And so this God has revealed himself in a way that is very demanding of us. When he said that he is love, when he fully revealed in Jesus Christ showed us what it means to be a disciple, he made some pretty great demands of us. In lifting our minds higher than reason alone could have reached, he calls for a transformation in our way of thinking, in our way of seeing, and in our way of acting. And I was actually thinking about that hummingbird. <laughs> well, no, no, I've been thinking about it because he's been here for a while, and I just pray that it finds its way out the, out the door because it's been trying to get out. But it's been there. Well, I don't know. There's actually a point here. (laughs) It's trying to reach the outside. And the only way that it knows how is through where it sees the light. Cannot realize that there's no opening there. It has to actually go counterintuitively further down, away from where it thinks it needs to go in order to find that that, that exit to where they can finally be free. Sometimes it's that way with our reason. 
It might feel like we're, we're being a little counterintuitive with some of the aspects of the faith. Sometimes it feels like it's actually contrary to reason, but faith actually allows reason to expand way further than it naturally would have. That ceiling right there beautifully is the extent to which reason can go alone. God calls us beyond that in a way that does not break the rules of reason, but rather stretches it to these glorious heights. And so... God calls us on faith to learn today what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean? Well, Jesus tells us, and it's quite beautiful and quite terrifying, because it's not easy. What does he say? He says, If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, that doesn't sound like the Jesus we know and love. We might be tempted to think Luke misheard that. We should probably just X out that part of the gospel, right? I, I, I want the Jesus that tells me to love my enemies and to pray for my persecutors. And yet here, he, he's saying to hate? What does he mean? Well, what he means is that there is a love that must be exclusive for God. We have exclusive loves all the time in our life. Right? I don't love my mom the same way that I love pizza, the same way that I love my dog, the same way that I love my enemy. No, all of those are going to be particular kinds of love. But none of them can ever be in competition with that love for which my heart was made. That love of God. He's in his own category. He has to be higher than everything else and in the central part of my heart and my mind. Anywhere else, he's not going to fit. It's that cornerstone, right? You can build on it. You can let it be the very center of everything. But it's not going to fit in your plans if you have it any other place. That's how our love for Jesus has to be. It has to be that kind of love that is so gripping of our entire being that we would sacrifice every other love for the sake of this one. And that's what we were made for. To have that freedom of the saints. Because with the saints, you can, you can tell them the entire world hates you. They'd still have that silly grin on their face like, God loves me. Well, we're going to take away all your stuff. Okay, I mean, I didn't own it anyway. It was all God. And they have this glorious freedom, and that's the freedom God calls us to, and it's the freedom that we only know if we let faith raise us beyond the limits of reason alone to see God as he is and realize he's worth my everything. I can't just give him 10%. I can't give him 90%. I have to give him 100% of who I am in order to be a disciple. I need to love him so much that I would sacrifice anyone and anything. Not like human sacrifice. I mean like sacrifice a relationship. Uh, that I would sacrifice anything for the sake of him who sacrificed himself for me. So what does that look like? Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we hate that, don't we? Like the cross, by its very nature, is something not terribly fun. By its very nature, the cross is something that calls us to little deaths. Because it is an instrument of execution. And we don't like that. And that's okay. Right? God can work with that. He doesn't call us to like the cross. He calls us to embrace it, to carry it, and to let it turn us into those free saints that he is calling us to be. But what is your cross? 
Very often we over-spiritualize it. We make it so abstract. We think, oh, it's going to be some great suffering. I have to go to the missions out uh, uh, somewhere on the other side of the the world. And I, I need to embrace some kind of glorious, spectacular cross. And God says, no, actually, that annoying person you decided to marry... That's your cross. That's that's one of the greatest blessings God has ever given you. But there are days where you look at them and say, I embrace my cross today. Because nobody on God's green earth has the exact same combination of buttons that they know how to push to make your head explode. You have not been as vulnerable with anybody as you have been with this person. It's your favorite person in the world, and yet it's the person who can hurt you most. And there, in that relationship, choosing to love, learning to be patient, kind, forgiving, humble enough to ask for forgiveness, probably every day. That's where you embrace the cross, you carry it, and you let it carry you into heaven. Also, those little creatures that you two created, right? Those bundles of joy. Nothing lit up your world as much as your kids. Also, nothing made your hair go gray faster than your kids. There's an element of the cross in the very people that we love the most because they get us at our weakest. And they are the means by which God strengthens us, builds up that character within us. Then beyond that, what else is the cross? All of the little inconveniences of every day. That moment when somebody doesn't know that the left lane is for passing and they're going way too slow. And you're driving to Albuquerque from Clovis and you're in a rush. This is all hypothetical, not autobiographical. (laughs) That person is a little share in the cross. And I have that choice to exercise patience and love or just let myself have a foretaste of hell by hating that person or being so angry and gripped by that anger. Every day we have so many encounters with the cross, so many opportunities to embrace it or to reject it. Sometimes it might be Not the people that we know, but the public figures that we see. The the cross is us choosing to love the person that we disagree with vehemently. And you might say, I love everybody, Father. I'm super tolerant. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) We'll see next election cycle. (laughs) Right? Because if if your blood boils at the thought of this figure or that one, you might have some work to do. I'm not saying you have to agree with everybody or not have strong convictions. I'm saying that even the person that you disagree with the most, the person who stirs up so much anger within you, you have to bring that anger to the Lord and say, God, I don't want to hate anybody. Not even this person who maybe stands for some hateful things. I need to learn to love them. Not in a way that makes me, like, agree with them, but in a way that makes me remember more than their policies, they're a beloved son or daughter of God. And I need to pray that they can understand that. And they can know their dignity and live in accord with it. So we have so many ways to embrace our cross. And that is how we become a disciple. By allowing the Lord to be the absolute center of our hearts and our minds. And then that gives us the strength we need to carry our crosses. Because in these two beautiful examples the Lord gives us of making sure that you have enough money to build the tower or enough troops to win the battle, that's us every morning. Every morning there's a battle to fight and there is a beautiful character within us to build or to destroy. Do we have the resources needed at the beginning of each day 
to fight that battle and to build that character? The answer? No. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> Sorry, you might be a great guy or a great gal. I'm sure you are. You look wonderful. But by the time you're done brushing your teeth in the morning, you've probably spent all of your patience for the day. <laughs> Right? So many different things are vying for your attention, for your focus, for your patience, your kindness. If you rely just on yourself, you will run out. And you will see Christianity as this, this uh, cycle of frustration. God calls me to something that is so great. I fall. I fall into self-loathing. And it's this vicious cycle. Instead, there's a better way. Instead of uh, spending the pennies of patience that you have, tap into the treasury of God's grace. There's this endless well that, that you can tap into every single day, but it has the only way to access it is through that lived relationship with the Lord, to have a real prayer life, to be able in the moment where the cross is bearing down upon you to say, God, I need you right now. I know that I don't have the strength. I have nothing to offer right now except myself. And that feels like it's not enough, but I know with you and your grace, it will be possible. So, to be a disciple, we love God with everything in a way unlike any other love, far beyond all of it. That allows us to carry our cross every single day. And then what was the third prerequisite? Any one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. And that's when many of us checked out, because we were like, sorry, I'm not cashing in my 401k and giving it to the poor. Like, I, I, I need to have some stuff. Or some of you who are raising families are like, oh, yeah, great, so I'm just not going to feed my kids anymore? Like, what is God calling me to here? Is he calling us to become St. Francis of Assisi and just explicitly sell all that we have? No. For some, yes. For some, he calls them to that radical witness. And those are the mendicant orders, the ones that have sold everything to be able to show us, like, yes, I can depend on God. He's called a small number to that. But you know what he's called all of us to? A reality check. That's what he's calling us to here. He is calling us to recognize the deep reality, which is nothing is ours. That breath, did I earn it? No. The blood in my veins, the breath in my lungs, the days of my life, all of those are free gifts from the Lord. Even the work ethic that I use to be able to earn my money, that was given to me by God. The body that I use, the intellect that I have, all of it, gifts from God. Yes, maybe I've developed them, but even there, God, by His grace, was giving me all the tools I needed. And so it's not a matter of how much do I give God. It's a matter of recognizing all of it's already His. By His grace, I get to make use of it. But it needs to all be in His disposition. I need to treat all that I am and all that I have as ultimately God's. So sometimes when I see a brother in need, I can't just say, well, tough for you. Instead, I have to say, that which I have is actually yours. And He's yours, too. How do you want me to help him with what is yours, but just under my control? But it takes a change of, a transformation of mind and a new set of eyes to be able to see things that way through the lens of God's love for other people. Because our natural disposition is to view them as threats or obstacles to our happiness. 
right? To see people as uh, either uh, objects to be used for our own personal gain or as possible obstacles to our plans, right? Because people don't get the memo how important we are, right? Very often they don't realize, I'm in a rush, get in the right lane, (laughs) right? They don't realize the brilliance of our plans, and we get so frustrated with them. What we need is a transformation of our mind, that faith lifts us up to that higher level to where we can be a true disciple, which means seeing things as God does, seeing each other as God does. And here we get this beautiful, beautiful letter of St. Paul to Philemon. Now, who here has ever read a letter of St. Paul in its entirety? Okay, a few of you. I'm very proud. By the end of tonight, all of you can raise your hands. Because you're going to go home, you're going to dust off your Bible. You're going to open it up, and you're going to look up the letter of St. Paul to Philemon. And we already read half of the whole letter today. So it'll take you less time than the commercial break in between your favorite Hulu show. And you'll be able to read all of the letter of St. Paul to Philemon. And you'll probably have the question... Why is this in the Bible? Because it seems like just a very personal letter. It's not to a community, it's to an individual. And it is, here's the context of it. Philemon was a Christian man whom St. Paul knew. A recent convert, because everybody was recent converts at that time. And so he still held on to something that was common in Roman culture. He had slaves. Now, their slavery was not as horrific as what we had here uh, in the U.S. with this chattel slavery, which was even more degrading than what they had in Rome, but it was still beneath the dignity of a human being. Well, one of his slaves, Onesimus, escaped and also converted to Christianity. And he was with St. Paul, and St. Paul did the unthinkable. He sent Onesimus back to his former master, with this note, which is the letter to Philemon. And in this note, he calls Philemon to a transformation in his way of thinking, in his way of seeing, and in his way of acting. That's what God calls us to. Because we might recoil at the thought of being called slave owners. We might say, I would never do that. But have I ever objectified a person? Have I ever seen a person as a means to an end? Ooh, if I get close to them, maybe I can get this job. Oh, maybe they can help me with this or that. Maybe I can kind of cheat them on their wages just a little bit. Maybe I can use them for my gratification in this way or in that way. Or even if it's just allowing ourselves to get so annoyed with them because we see an object there that is keeping us from what we want rather than a brother or a sister whom God loves with his very lifeblood. We have here this beautiful, beautiful, tiny little letter where St. Paul says, I urge you on behalf of my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. Do I have that kind of a tender love for people in my life? Or do I have this cold utilitarianism? They're as good to me as they are useful. Let's pray to have that kind of tender love. It says, Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, 
but more than a slave, a brother. We could bring to the Lord at this altar today all of those people that maybe we realize, I kind of use them. I, I might not call them my slave, but I kind of treat them that way. Even if it's just in my mind. Anytime that I dehumanize someone, objectify them, anytime that they are their political party rather than a person, anytime that they are uh, just a set of characteristics that I hate rather than a person that God loves, I've put them into this less than human category. Lord, give me eyes to see them as you do. Give me a heart to love them as you do. How does that happen? By us being disciples. By us picking up our cross every day. That cross of the various annoyances and the mundane day-to-day existence. But all of those little things add up to great holiness. But only if Jesus is our very center. So we ask for that grace. To be able to love him and love other people as a disciple of Jesus Christ would.